Are you ready for good talk? from Stratford, Ontario. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This is Good Talk. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. Um, 1958 was a good year for those of us who remember it. One of the things that was happening in 1958 was John Kennedy was a U.S. senator at that point. He was still a couple of years away from running for the presidency, but in preparation for that, he was making a name for himself on a number of fronts, and one of them was writing a book called A Nation of Immigrants. And there are lots of quotes from that book that are used when talking about immigration. And this is one of them because it clearly applies to the United States, but you can see how it applies to Canada as well. And at a time when immigration has has become a kind of top-of-line issue for a number of reasons, housing, immigration flow, student visas, all of that. But listen to this quote. As each new wave of immigration has reached America, it has been faced with problems. Not only the problems that came with making new homes and learning new jobs, but more important, the problems of getting along with people of different backgrounds and habits. So you can see how that applies at different times to the Canadian story as well. And we seem to be in one of those times now for a number of different reasons. So I want to talk about that for, for a couple of minutes. And uh, Chantel, why don't you start us? Because you're, you as well see immigration as kind of a key issue that is facing the country uh, right now at a time when we've, what, the numbers were, what did the government announce a couple of years ago? 500,000 new immigrants a year. Um, it's quickly been realized that housing is a big problem to house 500,000 new immigrants each year. But that is just one of the issues. So, Chantel, why don't you start us? Uh, I do believe we are seeing a shift in the conversation on immigration, at least at the federal level. Uh, immigration has been kind of a sacred cow topic for the mainstream federal parties, uh, the NDP, the conservatives, and, and the liberals, in the sense that uh, the, 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 the baseline was immigration is good, uh, and, and we want more immigrants. Uh, and there was never a, a, a very profound discussion. And whenever someone steered into, for instance, with the, the with this paragraph you read alludes to i.e. conflicts between values. Uh, the conservatives tried to go there in the last campaign with this uh, ban on uh, on kneecaps uh, at the citizenship ceremonies. The result was that they were perceived as anti-immigration, and they have been trying to fix that since then. But the, the, this conversation, the one that we're going into now, is a slightly different. And it is not just about, although there is a focus on the fact that the federal liberals decided to raise the target to 500,000 new immigrants a year, but it is not just about immigrants, people who apply, go through the process, and then come to this country and settle wherever they wanted to settle. It's also about another side of the equation, asylum seekers, whose numbers have been rising uh, at the speed of light, for instance, mostly showing up at airports in Montreal and Toronto, and mostly staying in those cities while they await an answer on their request to get asylum in Canada, which can take 18 months to two years. Meanwhile, uh, these are people who obviously are not going to be starving on the streets and begging, wait, waiting for an answer. Um, Foreign students, also numbers that have gone sky high, also in more so in some provinces than others. But, uh, and, and when you look at the entire picture, the fact is that what all the people I'm talking about have in common is they all need a roof over their heads. Uh, and we do not have, at this point, enough affordable roofs uh, to provide them 
uh, with a roof over their heads to them or their family, especially if they're going to be coming in large numbers uh, and add to that temporary foreign workers uh, to places that are already under stress. It's not news to anyone that the city of Toronto and the GTA uh, have housing affordability issues. I think the housing affordability has been an issue in Toronto for as long as I was uh, an adult uh, looking at house prices. So when you put all of that together, the conversation we're getting into stems from the conversation we've been having about not being able to build enough housing to keep up with the population growth. There are, and and the Conservatives this week uh, really pushed that theme that, that Mr. Poyev was on a visit to Quebec, where he would push that, uh, that theme probably with less risk than other areas of the country, because for all kinds of reasons, as you know, the Quebec discussion on immigration has been ongoing for a number of years. Uh, how do you adapt you know, large waves of newcomers to the fact that you want to maintain a French language society that's been part of the mix, but now affordability has come into the discussion. The problem for the federal liberals, frankly, is there are some stopgap solutions for instance, uh, there has been a really significant rise in asylum seekers coming to uh, Canada from Mexico. There was a time uh, in the uh, before Justin Trudeau came to power where Stephen Harper decided on that basis to demand uh, that people who come to Canada from Mexico obtain a visa to come here. There is pressure on the government to restore that. It's never pleasant for a government to go back to something it undid, but it it would uh, at least do something on that front. Um, The United States, by the way, the White House, the Biden administration is also asking Canada to uh, consider imposing visas on on Mexican uh, travelers to Canada again. But a lot of those issues are complex. Uh, Some provinces, Ontario looks like a case in point, have a huge problem with managing foreign students who are here on visas and who go to institutions that are little more than a front to allow people to get a visa that allows them to work in Canada. Others um, need the foreign uh, the temporary foreign workers, because they have labor shortages. Uh, think of the agricultural industry. So it's not an easy solution, but the main government problem federally is that it looks like it has not been paying attention to a number of yellow lights along the way uh, on all of those issues. And all of the chickens that it didn't pay attention to are coming home to roost. Uh, the, the problems with immigration um, do not stem from something that happened last summer. Uh, they they date back. After eight years in office, you have to own part of the problem of not having paid attention to warnings from civil servants, statistics, Canada numbers. And I guess the irony is that um, Mr. Trudeau last summer appointed to fix housing the minister who was in charge of immigration as all these issues were festering. And here we are today with what I believe is a major, major uh, liability for the liberals looking at an election. All right, you've given us the you've given us the big in- overview there, and lots to lots to pick from. So, Bruce, why don't you uh, start picking there? I agree. The issue is a major uh, risk one for the liberals right now. Um, I think we wouldn't be having a conversation about immigration were it not for the problem of housing. I don't think that the attitudinal mix in the country has shifted in the direction of we don't want more immigrants. Um, And I don't sense that there's a lot of um, racial animus in this conversation at all, which has been from time to time uh, apparent, but not not in this particular wave. Um, I think the biggest challenge for the government uh, beyond the how do we get more homes built more quickly um, and could we have started that five or six years ago um, as a matter of some urgency? They can't do that. They can't They can't roll the clock back. Um, the biggest problem that they have is incumbency means that you're responsible for the way that things are right now. And you can say it's complicated, which it is. And you can say that there are other levels of government where, which are involved in causing the challenge, which is true. Um, 
And you can say that it's better to have this problem of housing rather than the other problem of too few workers to support our economy, which is plausible. But all of that in the context of being some 15 points behind in the polls against a politician who doesn't need to hold himself accountable to the same standard of care. These weren't his policies. Um, And he's not arguing against immigration. He's arguing against incompetence. He is suggesting that the government has had these siloed views of immigration and housing and weren't able to put these two things together and to figure out that if they can't do the things that would make housing happen more quickly, then they should look harder at the question of how many immigrants is too many. And the subs, the other issue that Chantal touched on, which is the people coming in under these um, programs that, that people knew were being kind of abused um, there's a feeling of catch up uh, for the liberals on this right now. And they don't really need more issues where they look like they're on their back foot. Um, What's going, what's on the positive side of the ledger for the liberals. I do think that uh, Mark Miller and Sean Fraser, the two ministers who are most directly involved in this are two of the most capable uh, ministers, both from a, um, the ability to kind of cut through the policy issues and figure out what the better policy solutions are now. And also from the standpoint of being able to communicate uh, about them. Uh, I'm in saying that I am not suggesting for a moment that the liberals are uh, in the clear yet on this issue. I think it's a, it's still a developing problem for them. Um, And I think it's going to continue to be a developing problem for them as long as people feel that the economy is not where they want it to be. Uh, the cost of living is not where they wanted to be, and the cost of housing is uh, is such a symbolic and real pain point for as many people as it is right now. It just seems that they've been dealt an impossible hand, both those those two ministers. I mean, it, I, I don't see what the easy way out is on this, short of doing backflips on policies you announced <laughs> on numbers, especially. You know, I mean, listen, let's let's face it, as Kennedy said. In 58, which is the same applies for Canada, you know, other than Indigenous peoples, we're all immigrants. So we're kind of onside on the issue, but we're offside on the situation it's it's caused uh, on, you know, the number of, uh, of new immigrants each year, the whole issue of, you know, uh, student immigrant uh, visas, uh, visas for overseas uh, students that the universities have pushed for because it's cash in their in their pocket. <laughs> to have these students, but it's caused, you know, all kinds of problems on the, on the housing front, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Chantel, you wanted to, to add on to one, something Bruce said. Okay. So, um, well, they maybe have been handed an impossible hand, but it is largely a hand of their own making. This isn't a pandemic that has suddenly been sprung on the government. Let me give you a number just to, as an example, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but 600,000, that's how many uh, students who came to Canada to study on visas in 2019. Statistics Canada did an analysis of that number, and it found that uh, 20%, 19%, if you want to go precise, did not really attend any post-secondary education institution. They, they, they basically use their student visa to, to go to work. Now, if Statistics Canada can find that out, surely provincial governments and federal governments, because it's not just federal governments that license. Uh, and I'm not talking here about students that were accepted at Carleton or, or Queen's University or Seneca College. Um, I'm trying to show my, my great Toronto culture here. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, students who attend institutions that were created as a, as a visa mill to, to some of these institutions, private institutions, not mainstream ones, have um, 90% of the people who are supposed to be registered are no shows. Oh, they're here in Canada, but there are no shows. Uh, I agree with Bruce, attitudes on immigrations culturally have not changed. But even if you came to Canada from another country 30 years ago, and you see that your kids are struggling to be able to buy or to find the first home that they can afford, you are going to say, we need to fix this. Now, I talked about Amber Light's 
But this week, I saw two red lights flashing really vividly in the eyes of federal liberals. Um, what Pearson Airport and uh, Trudeau Airport have in common is that they are located in the two cities that are the last real strongholds of the federal liberals uh, going into what could be an election year. You have in Toronto, Olivia Chow, who is not a conservative, leading the charge on the federal liberals, saying, you know, I'm hiking municipal taxes and I'm going to hike them, almost double them, this hike, uh, unless Justin Trudeau comes up with more cash to help me to deal with these issues. Now, imagine if you're a, a liberal elected in Toronto, how you feel about that uh, and how about you feel how you feel about that knife on the throat. The same is true of François Legault. François Legault's demands and laments are not new, but they, they, they are documented and backed by numbers. But the reason why he is restating uh, those numbers so vivid, so forcefully is because we are going into an election. And it, it does hit the liberals where it hurts in the Montreal area where the problem is real uh, and, and really striking. So when you put all that together, uh, you have an issue uh, that... Yeah, I, I believe that uh, it could be the last nail in the liberal coffin unless they find some way to account for how, after eight years in power, we are where we are. And I don't think, the fact is the liberals have used immigration as a branding issue for the past 10 years. We are the pro-immigration, we're open to refugees, but... It remains to be seen whether they did the legwork that was required to not just have the brand, but to live up to it. And so far, the evidence is that they have not been paying attention to actually doing what they were talking about. It does seem like, you know, the, this didn't come out of nowhere. It was just sitting there as, a, 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 as this flare point. Um, and, and nobody seemed to deal with it. Nobody seemed to notice it or talk about it. And I guess that, you know, that includes the media is supposed to be watching all this stuff as well. Um, Bruce, you got a last point on this before we move on to a related matter, actually. And Chantel hinted at it a few moments ago, and that was Polyev's statements this week. But on the general discussion, Bruce, you got anything more to add on this? Well, you know, I know that we're going to we're going to get into the um, uh, discussion, maybe about the cabinet retreat that's coming yes. up. But I think for me that the. the point for the liberals is that if they're talking about this issue they're on defense now and the last thing they need is to be on defense given their situation and um you know i was reading uh, um a toronto star piece this morning that talked to some liberal caucus members and uh, kind of asked them to assess their situation and uh i read one quote that said well we can't out slogan Pierre Polyev and, and, you know, I'm, pra I'm paraphrasing maybe incorrectly, but our response has to be to come up with uh, more programs or better programs or new programs or something like that. And I, and I really feel like the liberals in government have, have over invested over indexed in the idea that every, every political problem requires a program solution. And really the situation that they're in is that Pierre Polyev's message has more focus, more punch, more reach, more frequency every single day on almost every single issue. And it would be a mistake, I think, for the liberals to say, well, we can't out-slogan him. We shouldn't try to do the kinds of things that he's doing uh, because I th actually think they do need to, um, to really take the business of politicking seriously here. Uh, if they want to be competitive in the election. And by politicking, I mean, it's not always about a program. It's about a pitch. It's about an argument. Make your argument. Make the pitch. Talk about the other people and what's wrong with them. If you see those flaws and you don't think the public sees them, talk about what you're doing and what you want to do for the future. But um, I don't think the Liberals necessarily need more programs. Now, maybe in this area, they will need some more and they'll need some program changes. But I, I, I think that's a reflex that comes with incumbency and almost a fascination with the levers of government sometimes. And uh, this is not that time where, where I think programs are the answer for everything. Well, Polyev does know how to make a pitch on a number of fronts, but he also knows how to step in it occasionally. And uh, Chantel, he seemed to step in it a bit this week. It's a bad idea 
for federal politicians in general, but federal politicians from away in particular, to come to Quebec to dump on elected officials in Quebec, regardless of whether you like those officials, you think, who the hell are you to come here and say stuff like that? Having set it up like this, Mr. Poilievre, over the course of his visit, um, decided that the mayors of Montreal and Quebec City, the two larger cities in uh, the province, uh, were, and those are his words, incompetence. Uh, that they were getting, his argument was that they were getting federal money for Justin Trudeau while they were standing in the way of affordable housing. Now, the reaction was swift on the part of both of these, but also uh, the Union of Quebec Municipalities. Uh, people have been on radio and TV saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. And why does he not know what he's talking about? Because I'm not sure Mr. Poiliev realizes that by declaring war on housing on mayors like Daly Plante or Bruno Marchand in Quebec City, he's actually declaring war on François Legault. And here is why. As opposed to every other province, Quebec cities, by law, are forbidden from entering into direct funding arrangements for housing with the federal government. The federal money for housing has to be given to the Quebec government. And the Quebec government then decides what it is going to do with it and which city warrant X amount of money. So when Mr. Poiliev comes to Quebec and says, when I'm prime minister, I'm not going to give money to those incompetents until they show me housing to speak for that money. He's actually saying, I'm going to take away something that the Quebec government has never, ever accepted giving to any government. I'm going to take away the discretion of the Quebec government to interact with its cities on its own terms. Uh, and I don't believe for a second that François Legault will wake up one morning and say, gee, you know, I sometimes have trouble with these two mayors that you don't like, so why don't you deal with them and getting out of my hair? Never going to happen. <laughs> But what it did show to many people is a abysmal amount of class, for one, and to uh, a, a significant amount of ignorance as to the fact that there are significant differences in the way that the federal government interacts uh, with cities in the province of Quebec. Some poor, poor advanced person is, <laughs> is probably getting getting screamed at in the background right now. Why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't I know this? Um, but he, he's got to wear it. Uh, and obviously he is wearing it uh, right now in Quebec, which was, and this was a big trip, right? This was the trip that where he was going trying to break through in, in Quebec, which is sort of the last place in the country right now that he's the, that he could get a significant breakthrough. Uh, how this, impacts that or not uh you know i guess time will tell but uh it wasn't a perfect week for uh for him um all right it'll be interesting it'll yeah, be interesting ahead. to see if he doubles down on this i mean he, he has he's, he's been insulting down. to make up for this and say it's not quebec centered he's been insulting the mayors of vancouver the mayors of uh, edmonton calgary do you want me to go down the list <laughs> just to show that this isn't you know, an attack on quebec the problem is that the, the, the people in those provinces will decide what they make of this approach to uh conversation, political conversation for someone who wants to be prime minister. But in this province, uh, it raises a lot more questions than it, it brings answers to why would you want someone like that who throws firebombs and has no respect for elected uh, officials um, to, who represent more people than Mr. Poiliev does at this point uh, to... Uh, to, to, to become your prime minister, what does it bode for the future? Nothing yeah. that you really want. So what, what I was thinking there was that the he does have a, a reflex sometimes where if he's criticized, and we talked about this before, um, if, it, if he opens himself up to a legitimate uh, and, uh, and painful criticism, 
um, he does tend to have that reflex that some politicians have, which is I'm going to double down. I'm going to punch back harder. I'm going to pretend that this criticism is meaningless, um, but I'm going to effectively show you that it, that it hurt me by the way that I respond. Pardon me. Let me just have a little drink here. <laughs> well, I Talk wonder what's in that cup. Yeah. yeah, sure. But his design for his housing solution has suffered from this flaw for some time, which is that he sort of imagined a world where he would be able to tell mayors where the new housing should go. And he's been talking about this for a while and not just in Quebec, obviously, you know, that, that he wants new housing to be built near um, transit ways. Sounds like a good idea, but embedded in that idea is the notion that a federal prime minister is going to have significant amount of leverage over where houses are going to be built in your neighborhood. If you're the average Canadian and anybody who's looked at this problem of housing with any care, knows that one of the problems associated with the slow um, building of houses is that uh, we have nimbyism. We have people who say, oh, density is a good idea, but not right where I live, right? And and so Polyev has been campaigning um, with relatively little criticism of this idea on the basis that he can uh, use the power of the federal purse and maybe the power of persuasion of himself as a politician to go to places like Guelph and and Toronto and Vancouver and everywhere else and say, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to give you this money, but only if you do these things with it. In a world where many people might say, well, the most important thing is the current government hasn't done enough and we need more solutions. And this guy sounds sounds like an action-oriented guy. That works somewhat, but... On the other hand, what the Liberals have been doing, I think, has been quite smart in this area. For, setting aside what the discussion we've had about where their warning signals should it have been accelerated earlier, this housing accelerator program features federal politicians, including the Prime Minister and the Housing Minister, almost on a weekly basis, uh, holding press conferences with local mayors. Uh, saying this is how many more houses we're going to build because of this agreement that we just had to cut the red tape to speed up the process and to get more homes built. So the setup of a contrast between liberals saying we're going to work with the mayors and to be able to show that they've actually uh, made progress with it. And on the other hand, Polyev kind of digging into this idea of a federal prime minister who's going to go into communities and say, this is how it should be. That's a useful contrast for the liberals. And and I think it is a mistake for Pierre Polyev, and it would be a mistake for him to continue to sort of play that role because it, it, it sets him up for a bit of a trap. Okay. One last point. I guess Mr. Polyev did not notice that the only news conference of the, this kind that took place in Quebec featured Francois Legault and, and Justin Trudeau and not some mayor, because you cannot have these news conferences in Quebec with a mayor for the reasons I stated above. Uh, and it's it's easy to, to, it's been all over the news in French. That being said, I want to just say something about the comment you made about some backroom person being yelled at. I'm told that uh, Mr. Poiliev has one advisor only and it, he is called Pierre Poiliev. So I'm, I don't think you can blame Ms. Stafford for not doing the advance on this. Uh, as much as Mr. Poiliev can only blame himself for his uh, penchant for picking enemies uh, and picking fights, even those that he doesn't need and that nobody is asking him to enter. Well, not that he hasn't uh, blamed staffers in the past. Remember <laughs> that uh, social media stuff? He, he, he blamed that one on uh, somebody in his office. We never found out who or why or what happened on that. Um <laughs> But I, I take your point, and especially if he's doubling down on it now, it would seem like nobody's uh, nobody's going to be in trouble for that. We'll see how it plays out. Sometimes confrontation works, you know, between levels of government. Sometimes it works, sometimes it backfires. backfires. So we'll see uh, how this one plays out, okay? We're going to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the cabinet retreat that takes place next week and why we should care, you know, 
you know, we keep hearing about these things, caucus retreats, cabinet retreats, cabinet shuffles, this, that, and the other. Nothing nothing seems of significance to change. We'll see. We'll talk about that when we come back, but uh, that's right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk. Chantel is in uh, Montreal. Bruce is in Ottawa. I'm Peter in uh, Stratford, Ontario, where there's lots of snow. Lots of snow in central Canada now, and, and still a lot of cold temperatures out there. You know, in Churchill, Manitoba, my old hometown, where there's a great port, the water was open in the port two weeks ago, two, two and a half weeks ago. It's kind of unheard of at that time of year for Churchill. <laughs> well, you saw the weather map in the last couple of weeks. That's changed. <laughs> it's just a solid ice out there in Churchill now uh, with those extremely cold temperatures, especially across the prairies. Um, okay, cabinet retreat next week. Justin Trudeau takes his cabinet, and they're going to they're gonna change everything about their 15-point deficit in the polls, or at least I'm, I'm sure that's what their hope is. Um, tell me why... Tell me why I should care about this cabinet retreat when we've seen all these different meetings and retreats and shuffles and you name it in the in the past year, nothing seems to have worked. Why should I care about this one? Bruce, you start. Well, you should care because you're doing a podcast about politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, let's care. All right, let's move on from that, uh, that obvious point. Um Look, I, I don't think there will be an election this year, but there could be. Um, I think it's reasonable to assume uh, that the Liberals are looking at their situation now and saying, if we don't start getting it more right soon, um, there will be no hope for us to win the next election. I think they're at that point now. Um, whether they discuss it with that degree of uh, clarity, I think I don't know whether that will be the case or not. There has been a tendency on the part of uh, of some liberals uh, to think that these are the normal problems of an incumbent government in a difficult economy and in between elections. Uh, this is what happens to support. Um, I think those those views, uh, to the extent that they're uh, widely held, are mistaken. I don't think they are that widely held. I think that's what some people say about the situation, uh, especially if they're not sure exactly what they can do to uh, to get to a better place. I think that there's a, uh, a sense that uh, the government is so often on the defensive that it hasn't figured out uh, how to escape that situation, not just on housing and immigration issues that we talked about, but um, if the country is saying it doesn't feel like everything's going well, let's not, let's, I, I don't think that everybody thinks the country is broken, but then they look at the liberals and they're looking for some optimism, some joy, some sense of here's what is going to go better for you and soon. Um, they're not really getting that. They get a lot of it's complicated and it's difficult and we're trying to manage our way through it. And um, there's a feeling of government as um, as management of the whack-a-mole issues of the day, uh, as opposed to um, a, a sense of purpose and and uh, and relevance personally. And that's the last point I would make, which is that uh, I'm glad that uh, Mr. Trudeau has brought in some new uh, communications talent on his team. I don't know if they'll be given uh, free reign to say all of the things that, that need to be said to really shake up the communications programming of the government. I hope that that's true. That's just good political management to do that, to challenge yourselves, to say, uh, what are we gonna do differently? But but you can see in the public opinion that there are big chunks of the population who don't feel that this government has been speaking to issues that matter to them personally. And uh, one group in particular is is uh, younger men. Um, this is a government that has, um, for many, many good reasons, and, and uh, it's an idea that I personally believe in, um, indexed heavily on feminism. Uh, but I do think that after this many years, um, that does leave a sense, it has the potential to leave a sense among a younger men, perhaps, that the government doesn't spend that much time thinking or talking about the 
the issues that matter to them personally, that affect their well-being, that affect their uh, sense of economic hope. And so I think there needs to be a, a really kind of clarifying conversation about what it is that the government exists to do. How is it going to describe that to people so that it's compelling, so that it's optimistic, so that it's a better contrast with the Conservatives? Uh, and how is it going to sound like it's more relevant to the person rather than about the country? Because this is the thing that I think Pierre Polyev is taking advantage of. So if the Liberals talk about what the country needs, Pierre Polyev talks about what you need. And uh, I think the Liberals need to get a lot closer to that mark if they're going to be competitive. And I think this is that moment where, and there will be more, but this is a pretty important moment coming out of uh, the kind of fall and early winter polling that they've seen. Uh, they don't have that much time on the clock and they've got to make some changes now. Chantal? So the the the, the new thing that uh, the government would like you to be thinking about is uh, the American presidential campaign and the American presidential election. And that uh, was obvious when Justin Trudeau visited Montreal earlier this week uh, and went out of his way to to talk about uh, the possible re-election of Donald Trump as, as a, a major complication for Canada. You never heard things like that coming out of the mouth of the prime minister in the first round. Um, but even the community announcing the cabinet retreat alluded uh, uh, to the the Canada-U.S. relationship. So you can kind of see it's you see the that you know the the, the strings that are uh, put being put in place to be pulled. That this retreat that you, you try to focus on what's been happening and what's happening in the U.S., which will be top of mind for many people, uh, even from a distance, who don't necessarily follow po politics from day to day, but the, the, the Trump thing is too big to ignore. It's, it's a constant, and it will be next week again. What I'll be looking for uh, is not some new program or even some... I mean, I, if the liberals want to talk amongst themselves about how they talk to Canadians, they can have at it. Um, but I'm going to be looking for signs that after eight years, there is still a capacity to think out of the box. Surprise me with some approach that I didn't see coming that doesn't sound like same old, same old, uh, and that demonstrates a capacity to break out of the box big. And that's what Bruce was describing uh, with this whack-a-mole. It's the box. And I have seen precious little evidence uh, in the communications or in the policies of the government that this capacity exists. They are forever in defense and catch-up mode, uh, and they're never saying anything that makes me say, as a voter, uh, gee, you know, I'd like these guys to have more time because I'd like to see how this pans out. There is nothing that they put forward that makes you say that. There's a lot of the, if they're not there anymore, there won't be this or there won't be that. But, but you're looking to a government or a party that wants to stay in government, you're thinking, well, do you still have anything um, to fresh? Are you still able to uh, have fresh thinking about emerging issues? And I don't know if I'll see evidence of that next week, but uh, by the way, uh, what many people always look for at cabinet and caucus retreats in circumstances like these is what happened at the caucus retreat that Jean Chrétien held in the, at the tail end of his term when he surprised everyone by setting his retirement date. I don't think that's going to be happening on uh, <laughs> on Monday or Tuesday of next week. You know, the, la the last time you, you could even make a, a small argument that they were thinking out of the box was when they did the carve-out on home heating oil. That sure worked <laughs> out well. Um. So you know, you know, we'll watch it, and we'll you know we'll see the prime minister stand at the microphones after it's all over and uh, and say something. Um, whether it can fit the bill that either one of you are talking about is is a heck of a challenge. But why one assumes he knows where he's at, and that if he really is planning to stay, well, when you when you organize these meetings. Um, in, and you're in the situation that Justin Trudeau is in, um, 
the decision to have one is it carries some risk. You know, it carries some opportunity, which is that you're going to galvanize everybody. You're going to say, this is what our plan is. And, and, um, and you're going to build confidence and you're going to hear from one another and everybody's going to end up feeling kind of united and pumped up. Um, the risk scenario is uh, if people have come through a fall where in their constituencies, they've been hearing pretty negative things in the polling, they've been seeing pretty negative things. Um, the feeling that they have is that conservative uh hasn't become more scary to Canadians, but it's become less scary. And I agree with Chantal that the almost job number one for the liberals is to make sure that before they go to the polls in the next federal election in Canada, the Canadians have a good understanding of what's under the hood of conservative in Canada, given everything that we're seeing in the United States. I say job number one, but it's certainly either job number one or job number two, it is very important. And I think it is work that has largely been um, unaccomplished so far. So the risk in calling a meeting like that is that you're going to bring people together and they're going to come with a set of expectations that they're going to hear some one or two or three things that are going to make them go, aha, when we do this, um, our situation is going to change. Uh, We're going to feel excited about it. Voters are going to feel excited about it. People are going to be surprised by it. Um, and if they don't feel that, uh, then you've crossed another um, checkpoint in that path that we've been talking about, which is what happens when incumbents are in there so long. Um, and that's why I think that any one of these now is more important than any of the ones that have happened in the last few years. Um, and and there'll be a caucus meeting uh, of the Liberal Party uh, caucus later in the week as well. Similar. Okay, we're going to take our final break. I, I would, all I would say is the danger in playing that U.S. card, the Trump card, the right wing card, um, and we saw it started over the over the holidays when when Trudeau did his uh, Terry DeMonte uh, interview. Um, the danger with that, of course, is that Trump loses. And suddenly that's not an issue anymore that plays either into or not into the uh, liberals' hands. And I, I, of course. But that assumes that if Trump loses, though, that the MAGA influences and Trump just go away, which is not my assumption. It feels to me like that's going to be a a major issue one way or the other. Yeah, I think the MAGA influence will still be around. He may not be. He may be in jail. Uh, and, you know, my flawless political predictions over the years uh, have him losing uh, this year and being in jail by, by the end of the year. But we know how successful I've been on those, those predictions. Okay, uh, we're going to take a final break. When we uh, come back, something, um, something a little different. Welcome back. Final segment of Good Talk for this week. Bruce is in Ottawa. Chantel's in Montreal. Um, you know, every once in a while there'll be a, an election result that, didn't, that doesn't necessarily uh, come without some predictions that it could happen. But nevertheless, it's a banner headline because it is surprising. It's sort of out of the ordinary. You think, uh, you know, Bob Ray winning in Ontario. Uh, in the 90s, the NDP winning in Ontario. Um, in Alberta, in the mid-20-teens, Rachel Notley, Notley became uh, Premier of Alberta, leader of the NDP. And, you know, who would have ever thought that would happen, that the NDP could win uh, in Alberta? Well, Rachel Notley uh, decided this week that uh, her, her time was up as leader of the Alberta NDP, and so she departs the scene, but not without having made uh, a mark on not only the, the landscape in Alberta, but the, the, the political landscape in the country. There's been talk that she might run federally. Uh, she seems to have dismissed that. Uh, but nevertheless, a, a figure on the, uh, on the landscape of uh, Canadian politics uh, who made her mark surprised us at times, um, led us at times. And I think of those, um, you know, the, the fires around Fort McMurray and the way she led her province uh, through, through that. 
um, uh, was was something that other premiers acknowledged was a lesson in how to lead at a time of crisis. Um, Chantal, Rachel Notley, leaving the uh, Canadian political scene, at least seemingly leaving the scene. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, um, leaving the Canadian political scene might be a, a, a way to describe it that will not uh, live up to its advanced billing. I am not saying here that um, Rachel Notley is going to be running uh, in the next federal election, and certainly not for Jagmeet Singh's NDP. And why I say that is because when she resigned, she listed the accomplishments of her government. And what was at the top of the list? The completion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, which federal party fought the completion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline tooth and nail? The federal NDP. So I am not seeing uh, Rachel Notley go to Albertans and recommend the federal NDP as an option to for uh, for voters in her province. It would make absolutely zero sense. If she were to run federally, and she has said she would not, although those statements you never take at face value because she's still the leader of the party till the summer. And it would be very awkward to say, I'm, I'm going to run when everybody knows that if she ran, it wouldn't be for the federal NDP, which leaves only one option, and that would be the federal liberals. That would be called doing a Bob Ray, having surprised the country by winning government in Ontario, Mr. Ray subsequently re-emerged federally as a liberal. But in the larger Canadian political scene, I'll have you note that the NDP leaders, those that uh, make significant, uh, have significant impact, tend to resurface in some capacity. Uh, here are three of them. John Horgan, recently Premier of British Columbia, now our ambassador to Germany. Gary Dewar was the envoy to Washington for um, Stephen Harper and Stephen Lewis, who worked in the same capacity at the United Nations for Brian Mulroney, Ed Broadbent, uh, who went on to chair a, a think tank called Rights and Democracy, uh, appointed by Brian Mulroney. The, the point I'm trying, and Bob Ray, of course, who now serves uh, in the UN, the point I'm trying to make is uh, that in the past, the liberals and the conservatives have not um, been inclined to leave uh, remarkable new Democrats sitting on the sidelines. Uh, and so I totally expect in some way, shape or form to see Rachel Notley in some capacity in the public life of this country going forward. The other question is for Albertans to respond to answer is whether in her absence they will revert to their one party system or whether she leaves behind an NDP strong enough uh, to be a contender. Certainly by the numbers, uh, the NDP is a contender for government in Alberta today. Where it will be in two years, it's much too early to tell. Bruce. Well, I, I first want to say I just think doing a Bob Bray is a, is a good thing. I, I don't know that anybody suggested otherwise, but to me it's um, – uh, you know, it's a good day uh, for the Liberals if they can recruit um, talented um, new Democrats. I think that um, the list that Chantal went through is an interesting list. And and so I don't tend to think that um, it, uh, I think the Liberals should run, not walk to uh, go and try to recruit Rachel Notley. The federal Liberals should. I think they, they probably are already running. Yeah, they may have been there a few times already for that matter, right? So my assumption is that that is a conversation that they see that way as well. She has been a, a remarkably effective politician in Alberta with the NDP brand in the most conservative province of the country. Um, it had to be frustrating for her uh, to lose an election to Danielle Smith, who, I'll be, I'll be gentle, I don't think is her equal, from the standpoint of, uh, sorry about that, um, her equal from the standpoint of political management and and contribution to the public space um, in terms of ideas. Uh, but, uh, and she may not feel like she wants to be in politics right now because a lot of time if people have been in it for a while, it feels like a pretty miserable way to spend your 
your time and, and the grass can look pretty green on the other side. Uh, and, and full power to her if she decides that's what she wants to do. But if she wants to make a contribution to pol- political life, um, uh, you know, she might look at the Liberal Party now federally and say it doesn't look very competitive. Um, and that might keep her uh, away from it for a while. But uh, I'd love to see her um, uh, be competitive in politics again. I'd love to see her make a contribution. And I think the issues that she um did a did a good job of managing not to everybody's satisfaction but you can't on these issues are the uh are the energy issues and the and the transition of canada's energy sector and she was right in the heart of it in alberta uh and competitive uh because she was trying to um marry those competing instincts to protect the economic opportunity that our uh, our traditional energy sector has and find the new opportunity uh, in a decarbonization scenario. So she's got some excellent, excellent experience in trying to manage that. And it's not an easy thing to manage. All right. We're going to have to uh, kind of have to wrap it up for this week. I, I, I was thinking, though, when you went through the past NDP leaders and uh, NDP personalities who received federal appointments of uh, one kind or another from different uh, governments, both the Liberals and the Conservatives, um, that Ed Broadbent never went that way, Right. I mean, I think they. I think somebody offered him a Senate seat, which, of course, for an NDP <laughs> leader was thanks, but no thanks. Um, but he, I'm sure he was offered stuff, and he must have just said no. I, well, he liked he liked running rights and democracy, which was yes. created by Brian Mulroney. And there was a time when Brian Mulroney wanted him to co-chair a royal commission on. Um, indigenous uh, rights, uh, but something happened along the way, as in it leaked, and some cabinet ministers were not happy about that choice, and so it didn't happen. And who did it leak to, and why do I know that? I'm the one who wrote that story that apparently cost Mr. Broadbent that appointment. And as you reminded us last week, there was a time in that early 80s where Pierre Trudeau talked to Broadbent about some kind of relationship between the two parties listen thanks for all this good conversation as always uh catch the buzz tomorrow subscribe to it the national newsletter.com um and uh, we'll talk again in a week's time thanks bruce thanks Chantel. take care have a great weekend 